Uh, I'm Mitch Cunningham. I'm one of the elders here at the New City Church, and I'm just honored to be part of this church uh, and just blessed to be part of the discipleship culture that is in it. And you're just really honored to see how God is using that to grow its kingdom. Um, just really glad to be part of that culture. Uh, but I want to start off today uh, by explaining to you exactly how I got up on this stage. So with that, I'd like to introduce my father, and you all know what part he had in that. Uh, this is Joe Cunningham right here. Wave, Dad. Say hi. My stepmother, Linda, right next to him. Uh, most people don't say this about their mother-in-law or their father-in-law, but the greatest mother and father-in-law you could ask for. Um, so they're all here in the house today, so that we're going to have a little fun with this. They lived through most of this testimony that you're all getting ready to hear. So uh, how I got up on the stage today is uh, our lead pastor here, Casey, he asked me and a bunch of uh, several men from both campuses to be part of a class called T3. Uh, the focus on that class was uh, teaching teachers to teach. Uh, so naturally, you know, if I just would have uh, paid attention in that class, this probably would have been a lot easier today. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, so we took the class, or in my case, um, I just tried to keep up with the scholars that were in this class. I mean, what a great group of men that I got to, to study with over the last few months. Uh, it was just truly an honor to be part of that class. Uh, but a strange thing happened. Um, right before the class was getting ready to get over, Casey decided that he needed to go on vacation. Kind of strange how that worked out for him, isn't it? And it's kind of like he planned the class so that he had somebody to fill in for him today. But anyway, seriously, it was just truly an honor to be part of that class. Um, Daniel Smith, uh, he, he gave a lesson last weekend. He was in the class. He taught on Father's Day, and uh, he did a great job. Thank you, Daniel, for that. It was just an honor to be with him in the class. Um, and I was chosen to fill in for Casey today while he was on vacation because we're starting a new series, and that series is called Freedom. Um, and it's the freedom that comes from God's grace. And I was asked to speak today because I know a thing or two about um, the freedom that comes from God's grace. Um, and Kyle C. Walson, who you all heard up here this morning, he's going to come in and give the second part of that next weekend. He was in the class, and then David Rawls was another guy that was in the class. He was out of town. He was going to speak last weekend, and uh, he was out of town, so I'm sure you'll hear from him in the future. Uh, so anyway, so what we're going to do today is we're going to take some uh, stuff from the book of Mitch Cunningham, and we're going to mix in some Romans 6, and we're going to learn about the freedom that comes from God's grace. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look for the Kleenex that I've had up here all morning because this is a pretty emotional um, testimony for me. And you all probably ought to put your seatbelts on because it's going to be a pretty wild ride like, um, like the last 35 years of my life has been. So what I want to start off with today is I want to start off by uh, reading Romans 6, uh, 6 1 to be exact. Well then, should we keep on sinning? So that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace. I mean, is that the way it's supposed to be? Is that really the way it works? Do we keep sinning because we know that God is going to forgive us? Well, the answer to that when I was growing up was, heck yes. Sin as much as you can and take full advantage of the grace of God. And that's the way I lived my life. It was so much easier to ask for forgiveness than it was to ask for permission. Which... Right there is where we're going to lead into the book of Mitch Cunningham. We're going to start on chapter 1, verse 1. Um, so I, grow, uh, I grew up in a small uh, northwest Kansas town called Atwood. 
Um, it was just a great place to grow up, a small town with about 1,500 people in it. All the people were just great, real safe environment to grow up in. It was kind of like that Facebook post a lot of you have probably seen where you get on your bicycle first thing in the morning and you go ride your bike all day long until the streetlights come on. Well, that's how Atwood was. I mean, literally, in Atwood, you came home and checked in when the streetlights came on, and then you went back out and rode around for a couple more hours. I mean, it was just a really safe environment to grow up in. Uh, so anyway... Uh, like when you would drive down the street, and this is the amazing about Edward, it didn't matter how many times you passed somebody, every single time they waved at you. Every single person, every single time waved at each other. It was just an amazing place to grow up. Uh, so moving on, my dad, uh, Joe, was the Christian minister there in town, so I grew up in the parsonage of the Christian church, and I don't know if very many of you know what a parsonage is because they're not real common anymore, but it's the little house right next to the Christian church. Um, so my dad was a preacher there, um, and long about first grade, my parents got divorced, and me and my brother and my sister, we um, moved with my mother to uh, another northwest Kansas town called Goodland, um, and we stayed there for about a year with my mother, and then my mother decided to take another job in Wichita, Kansas, so um, all of us kind of got together, my dad and my mom talked to all of us kids, and we all decided we'd move back with my dad, because that was just really, you know, my father was more stable at that point, my mom was moving and had to start a new job, so we all moved back to Atwood, um, and along about this point, that's when Linda Cunningham came into the picture, and my dad got remarried about second grade or so right in there, and she brought two kids to the, to the marriage, wonderful stepbrother and sister, Danny and Shelly. Um, and so the five of us all grew up together in Atwood. It was a great place to grow up, a great family. They treated us great. Um, it, was, it was just a lot of fun growing up. And this is kind of the way life went until I got into like eighth grade, you know, in between eighth grade and, you know, about the start of my freshman year. Well, we traded the bikes in for cars. So things got a little more serious then, you know. Um, but there just really wasn't anything to do in Atwood. I mean, the movie theater closed down. There was a drive-in, so you just drove around. It's kind of like the other Facebook post maybe you've seen. You know you're from a small town. If you cruise three blocks up the street and you turn around and you drove back three, street, three more blocks and you turn around and you did it again. Well, the thing was, that wasn't enough for us. Three blocks just wasn't enough. So what we did is we rode around and drank. I mean, that's just, that's just all there was to do. So the only thing there was to do in town is you rode around and drank or you went to the drive-in movie and drank, or you went out to the pasture or somebody's barn, you threw a cake party and you drank. I mean, that's just the culture that Atwood had in it. I mean, there was no such thing as a DUI in Atwood, Kansas. The cops drove around and drank. So it was socially acceptable. There wasn't a lot of drugs or anything like that, but, you know, it was all legal. So that's, that's what people did in Atwood, um, except for the Christian preacher, of course. He didn't do that. But um, so anyway, um, moving on. So this is how we grew up, and um, everything went along pretty well until probably about halfway through my freshman year. When I moved into high school, I started taking things a little more serious and started partying a little bit more, and I know Linda remembers this story, but uh, I used to sneak out all the time. So I went and put Vaseline on the hinges on the back door so I could sneak out because I kept, it was too loud. So my sister went and told on me, so this is just kind of a... One of those things that we remember real well, but I used to sneak out all the time, stay out all night and get drunk. Um, well, this started to uh, create a little bit of turmoil, I guess you'd say, in the family, um, and it, it just wasn't a good situation. So my dad, and I'm sure he probably talked to my mother, maybe, maybe not, but at this point, my dad decided the best thing for me uh, was to pack my bags and I needed to go live with my mother. All right, and she had moved to Kansas City at this point in time. So my dad uh, came up and visited me at the high school and told me, Mitch, your bags are packed, and I'm going to put you on a bus. And um, 
I'm going to send you to your mother's. Well, man, I was having way too much fun. Uh, that, that just didn't fit in my schedule at all. You know, I was having way too much fun partying with all my friends. Um, so what I did is I decided to grab my bags, and I went over to my buddy's house, and he had cool parents. So uh, the Beelers said, sure, you can crash on the couch. You can stay here. Well, most of my family that's sitting over here, well, they know Mark and Brad, and they were pretty much, uh, we were uh, threesome that probably didn't need to be together, man. We were hell raisers. Uh, we pretty much took Atwood by storm. And uh, uh, anyway, so I started living there, uh, and that didn't set too well with, with the old man, as you would say. But anyway, uh, that didn't set real well with the parents. Okay, so at this point in time, uh, they turned me over to the court system and made me ward of the court. Um, and there were several families in town that had decided that they would volunteer to take me in. So the court system, the judge, uh, Reinert, and my parents got together, and they decided that the best people for that job to try to raise me would be a, a nice couple there that actually went to our church, Keith and Rosalie Ross. And they were a little bit older, uh, and they didn't have kids my age. So they decided that was probably the best atmosphere for me, is not moving in with kids that were my own age to help influence me. You know, or probably at that point for me to influence their kids is probably what they were trying to avoid. But anyway, um, I mean, I still got good grades. I was a big jock. I played all the sports. Um, I just continued on doing all that stuff through school. I had a good job, worked for a farmer, always a really hard worker. Um, and this kind of continued on through my whole high school year. I just kept sneaking out, getting drunk and partying, going, doing my sports thing. And I, I just didn't get caught as much at the Rosses because I learned how to sneak out a little bit easier over there. And it just kind of continued on that way um, until I got to my senior year. In my senior year, we decided, um, we decided that we were going to take life a little more serious. Um, so what we did is we had a new football coach in town. And this football coach... Um, he was supposed to be pretty good. I mean, our football team stunk. We were 2-8 and eight my freshman, sophomore, and junior year. But I was a big part of that football team. I was a captain. I was a you know, linebacker. I was a wingman. I ran all the kicks and punts back. So I thought, well, I uh, got the other two captains together, and um, we had a meeting, a meeting. So it's time to take life a little more serious. We've got an opportunity to do something here as a football team. Um, so what we did... Um, is we got the whole team together, and we decided we're going to take life serious. So we had a town meeting, or a, a team meeting, sorry. Um, and we decided what we would do is we would take it so serious that the only nights any football player was allowed to get drunk were Wednesdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sunday afternoons. <laughs> so we were going to take life serious, man. I was going to hit my senior year taking things serious, and I'm going to go somewhere with my life. So anyway, that just tells you, the, you know, the culture that I grew up with and where I was headed in life at this point. Well, well, this football coach, I mean, he, this guy, if you would look up the town of Atwood, he came in and changed the entire culture of the entire town. And my senior year was his first year coaching there. So the entire town was just like on fire. They had this buzz. What happened was is we missed the state championship game by one game. We scored a football. We scored a touchdown on the last second of the game. And um, we decided we would go for the win, instead, the two-point conversion instead of kicking it. And so, um, well, we didn't make it, okay? But we were one game of the state championship, and we were a terrible football team. He got coach of the year, and several players went and played in the Shrine Bowl. I mean, this thing, the town was on fire. Well, th this is kind of the way that the rest of my senior year went. We went out, and, man, we started tearing it up. We were in basketball season. We didn't care, man. We were having a good time. We were a great football team all over the news and, and everything else. Well, 
what happened was, is we had thrown a party down by the lake, and um, it was right next to the golf course. Me and a couple guys that had already graduated from school. Well, we went and got drunk, and we decided we'd break into the golf cart house, and we'd take out the golf carts, and we'd go out and terrorize the golf course. Well, um, what happened was, is there was a couple of members that were out on the golf course with their girlfriends in their golf carts, and they saw us. Well, they ran two of us down, and well, once we knew we were caught, boy, we went and took the golf carts back, and we hightailed it out of the golf course. Well, one of the guys didn't know that we'd been caught, so he decided he'd take his golf cart, and he'd destroy the entire golf course. He poked holes in the greens. He rolled his cart down the hill into the creek upside down and destroyed the golf cart. And Well, uh, at that point, um, not only did we have a new football coach, but we had a new district attorney in town, and he was hell-bent on making a name for himself. So to make a long story short, I was halfway through my senior year, and I got charged with the other two guys that were there, all three of us, guilty by association, got charged with seven felonies and three misdemeanors for tearing up the golf course. So, boy, what a setback that was. It was not something I was proud of. The whole town pretty much thought we were, you know. I mean, the golf course in this town was like church, okay? I mean, this was, this is something you didn't do, man. Everybody hated us. So anyway, uh, senior year went on, and I went through the court system, and I copped a plea. I took a plea bargain, if you don't know what that means. So pretty much what happened was, is my senior year, I put my cap and gown on. I finished the year, put my cap and gown on. I walked down the aisle, I walked across the stage, I got my, got my diploma, I got in my car, drove to the bottom of high school hill, and I took a right-hand turn, and I went into the courthouse, and I turned myself in, and I did, um, I did two weeks in jail, as soon as I graduated from high school. Anyway, so, you know, that was a great, a great way to start off, you know. So part of my plea bargain was is that I had to do two years of paper, too. I had to do two years of probation after I got out of jail. But the felonies were going to be gone. Everybody said that's the best way to go. That's how you want to start your life if you're, you know, at least do that for yourself. Um, so that's what I did, and I partied hard all summer long. Well, I had a good job, and the guy that I worked for really, really liked me. He was a farmer, and so he paid my way through Votech school. So as soon as summer rolled around, I would move to Goodland, Kansas, and go to Votech school for um, diesel mechanics. Well, I ended up being real popular. I got elected for, you know, president of the class and everything. So, man, I was partying hard then. I mean, I was Mr. Popularity in the class. So, started smoking a little weed back then, you know, nothing too harm, just partying a lot. Well, part of a probation is, is you know, most of you probably know you're not supposed to drink. So, what happened was um, I, got, I got in trouble for drinking while I was on probation. So, um, my mother, at that point, was talking with my probation officer, and they decided, you know, well, there's got to be something else we can do just besides for revoke his probation, put him in jail. So they came up with the idea that maybe I should go to drug and alcohol counseling. So they presented that option to me. They said, we can either revoke your probation or we can go to drug and alcohol counseling. Well, I didn't have any money. So I couldn't go to the Betty Ford Clinic because that was hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we found, my mother found the, the only free drug and alcohol counseling program in the state of Kansas or Missouri. It was called Renaissance West. So they presented that option to me. So I decided I would take that option instead of going to jail. So my mother came down, we packed all of my stuff up, and I moved to Kansas City. Went over there and we met with the people from Renaissance West. Um, good place. I thought everything was going to be great. I thought I could do my six month here, get my life straightened out. Um, but what, what they didn't tell us about Renaissance West when I went there is that everybody from Renaissance West 
came from prison. I was the only volunteer in the entire program. Out of 40 people, 39 of them had come straight from prison. The first night that I stayed there, you have 30 days where you have no outside contact with anybody. And the first night I stayed there, um, the guy that I roomed with was out on bail for first-degree murder. So it was kind of a a life-changing experience for me. Uh, I did not use it to the advantage that I probably should have. Um, I pretty much cheated my way through this entire course. I learned about drugs when I came up. I didn't know anything. I was a Northwest Kansas kid, man. Didn't even know what drugs were. Very naive. I learned all about them. When I got out of this six-month inpatient program, I had shot drugs. I had dealt drugs. I had I'd done everything with drugs you ever imagined. And this is in a six-month period, and I didn't know anything about drugs. So when I came out of this program, man, I was, you know, I was running pretty hard. I mean, I was running with the crowd that probably shouldn't have been with, but I was. And so, you know, I was really abusing drugs and alcohol at this point, and um, I was causing a lot of pain to a lot of people, a lot of friends, a lot of family members. Um, I destroyed countless relationships, man. It was just, you know, I just, I didn't care. I was having a good time. That's all I cared about is the next party. So anyway, uh, long about midway through my 20s, uh, you know, I started realizing that there was no such thing as a DUI in Atwood, but boy, there sure was in, in Kansas City. You can't drive around drinking Kansas City. So in my 20s, I accumulated seven DUIs, seven of them. So um, at this day and age, I would have been in prison for that, and not just once. I would have probably done three or four prison sentences in a row for all the DUIs that I got. Um, oh, in total, uh, the best of my knowledge that I can remember over that 10-year time period, I, uh, time period, I got jailed 20 times for aggravated battery, drug possession, and then all the countless um, DUIs that I had accumulated. So anyway, um, I always had a really good job. Uh, I probably lost a few of them along the way, but I always ended up having a good job because I was a really hard worker. And I spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars Literally, I spent uh, all my money either getting high, getting drunk, or getting out of trouble. And man, I, I always joke about, I probably paid for all my lawyer's kids to go to college. I mean, that's how much trouble I used to get in. So anyway, um, I, I mean, there's even, I, I wrecked multiple cars. I got two DUIs in three days. I wrecked my car and tore it up. While I was in the shop, I went and rented another one. And um, I got so drunk that I'm driving down I-35, and they had literally coned off the right lane of I-35 because they were going to be striping. They were going to be striping that lane, you know, painting the lanes on the side of the highway. Um, and I remember coming to, and there was cones flying everywhere, and there was two guys in orange jackets, one's running this way and one's running that way, and I'm doing 65 miles an hour right down the highway, plowed right into all of them. And I came to, and I remember just swerving over into the left lane, and I drove on home like nothing ever happened. Didn't slow me down one bit. It's by the grace of God I didn't kill somebody that night. So anyway, um, I got into major drug dealing at this point. Um, I, I was really, I mean, my family didn't really know about it. I, I hit it a lot. I still had some, some sort of a conscience left where at least I didn't want my family to know. But um, anyway, my mother had a daycare at this point at 75th and Medcalf, and I... Um, I started hanging around there in the winters, fixing, doing maintenance for her when the construction would slow down in the winter. I met this really nice Christian gal. Paula Tolson was her name. And somehow, I don't know how I did it, but I convinced her to marry me. Um, 
and you, you have to take into consider, consideration at this point, I was the king of deception. Like I said, I mean, these, uh, all these family members, in-laws and parents at this point, they had no idea that it was as bad as it was. I mean, I was, I was doing a lot of things I wasn't proud of, but I sure wasn't going to stop doing it. So anyway, uh, Paula had no idea about any of this, but I convinced her to marry me. Um, and I put her through hell. I mean, literally, it was, it was like a prison sentence for her because um, she didn't tell anybody. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many nights she spent um, I can't tell you how many times she spent at home at night laying around in bed wondering where the heck I was. I mean, it's, it's, she just, she's a saint. I'd be drunk, passed out somewhere is what she thought every time her dad. I just was too drunk to even know the phone was ringing. But anyway, it was like a prison sentence for her. I was a complete failure as a husband. I told this young lady so many lies about where I was, where I was going, what I was doing. Drugs and alcohol controlled my life. I put the entire family through hell. I'd broken most of the Ten Commandments at this point. The only reason I hadn't broken them all is that that night I blew up through those barricades. I didn't kill somebody. That's the only reason I hadn't broken most of them. So anyway, Paul and I got married. Um, you know, we had several children at this point, and um, I had taken me a new job. Um, I was running a 60-man concrete crew for Tompkins Paving. And I was pretty much running this guy's entire business, um, pouring concrete, multiple crews, working, working, working all the time, making a lot of money. What nobody else knew in the family is that I was also pushing methamphetamine. So within six months of working with this guy, I pretty much had all 60 guys strung out on methamphetamine and probably their family and most of their friends. But boy, was I making a lot of money. I was spending it all, but I was making a lot of money, you know. So anyway, you know, I started getting messed up with some uh, not-so-good people. I had met some guys from a Mexican cartel down in Kansas City, Kansas, and they had a direct pipeline for methamphetamine, and I was making a lot of money selling it. So anyway, um, nobody really knew how bad it was. I mean, they were starting to get a clue. Things were starting to, starting to happen that weren't pretty. I had gone up to my mother's work and caused a big scene up there, and my dad was called, my in-laws were involved in it, and it was a huge mess, all right? And, and it came to the point where um, some of those Mexicans came to the house looking for me. I owed them some money. And I came up knocking on the door, and I'm pretty sure that my in-laws and my dad and my mom, and I, I don't know who all knew, but it freaked them out. Needless to say... At that point, I knew I was either going to end up divorced, dead, or in prison, or a combination of all of them. And um, so what happened was at that point, I decided it's time, to start, it's, start, it's time to start listening to God. I mean, I always had that little voice in my head, and I had a good growing up. I'd been raised right. It was time for me to come clean. So well, I, I told my boss what was going on. And he was a preacher. He had to preach. I mean, he had a church, and, but he ran a construction company during the week. Well, he did, he did, he did the only thing he possibly should do. He fired me. So I was without a job. I had four kids. Paula was, um, she was pregnant with number five, just a few days from being born. And if some of you, my in-laws were probably there, and I know Debbie and Russell were there. Um, so what happened was I started listening to God. I started paying attention. I started moving that direction. 
So um, on January 9th, uh, 2005, at 127th and um, I gave my heart back to God. And let me tell you, that's when it got tough. Man, if you want to make your life rough, just give your heart to Jesus. Because that's when the devil really attacks you. And if anybody in here has been saved, you know it. So anyway, I got saved that day. And that was a long start of a long journey for me and my family. I packed them up, got me a job in Denver, Colorado. And I moved my family. I moved my family off. And it was a long battle. The drug dealing and the drug world, I, pretty, I walked away. I packed them up. We moved to Denver. I got me a great job. I still would drink a Go out with the guys and drink and still cause her a lot of pain through those days, too. So I got saved, but it, it wasn't instant transformation by any means. She hung in there. She had gone to, you know, through all this stuff before we moved, she had talked with her Uncle Daryl, which was a preacher, and got biblical consultation on whether she should leave me. I'm sure she talked to her parents. I'm sure she talked to my mother, probably my father. I'm not sure who all she talked to. I don't think she listened to any of them. She hung in there. God told her to stay, and that's what she did. And I don't know why. So anyway, I'd gotten saved, and we started a new journey. And we were on the road to recovery, and it was a long one. We ended up moving back here in town in 2000, somewhere in 2009. I was a different person, but I still wasn't completely well. But it was a long journey, and I'm here now. Um. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad we all made it here together. But so now I want to read back to Romans 6, 1 through 6. Well then, should we keep on, should we keep sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Well, when I was younger, I probably shouldn't have stopped there. I probably should have kept reading because it says, of course not. (laughs) Well, I should have listened to that a little sooner. But of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined in Christ, Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was risen from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Thank God for the sacrifice that he made by giving his one and only son so that I can live a new life. What a powerful thing that is to know that baptism is the burial of our own bodies. And that as Christ was risen, that so are we. Now I want to read a little more on in Romans 6, 12 and 13. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. 
And that is not how I lived my life. I let sin control my life. I spent my entire life using my body as an instrument of evil. But now I've given my life completely to God so that He can use me as an instrument for the good of all people, of all of His people, and the glory of His kingdom. I'm going to close, and I want to read just a little more of Romans. I want to start at 20 and 23, 20 through 23. When you were slave to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things that you do. Things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So I just wanted to say that it's by the grace of God that I'm standing in front of you today. It's by the grace of God that I have such a great church family. It's by the grace of God that I'm not in prison somewhere. And it's by the grace of God that my parents, my in-laws, their, my kids, their girlfriends have stood by me all this time. It's by the true, true grace of God that I'm still married to the most wonderful woman of God in the entire world. Thank you.